0: the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investech are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Peter Turchin, whose new book End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites and the Path of Political Disintegration does something very startling indeed. It proposes, a, if you like, a scientific theory of history, which, ever since the last person to do that, Karl Marx, has been somewhat out of fashion. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Can you tell me a little a bit about how you approach this about what you call cleodynamics, this new, new way of looking at history?
1: Well, you know, we live in these very um, nice societies that are in principle capable of delivering high quality of life to, to the populations. However, as we know from history, all such complex societies in, uh, eventually enter a period of um, social and political turbulence, which I have called end times. Why? The the quick answer is elite overproduction. Elite overproduction is something that we observe ubiquitously in all the periods preceding crisis periods in the past societies that we have studied. At this point, we have gathered uh, nearly 200 cases of such past crisis uh, ranging all the way from the Roman the crisis of the Roman Republic and over to today and um too many elites uh looking for a fixed and not increasing number of elite positions is seems to be the universal feature of this road to those crises
0: yes could you explain what what elito production means exactly i mean you've you've sketched it there you explained very well in the book what what that means exactly in, in detail and what forms elite overproduction can take? Well, first,
1: the first question uh, is who are the elites? That's uh, simply uh, speaking, elites is the small proportion of the population of a society that concentrate social power in their hands. So think about the proverbial 1% in the United States or the Mandarin class in imperial China or military nobility in medieval France so these are this uh, this is the small proportion of the population who gather in their hands the political military ideological and administrative power now elite overproduction occurs uh, where because we have to ask the next, next question how are elites uh, reproduced uh, socially reproduced you know it, there is there the um, process itself involves obviously some people desiring elite positions, we, we call them elite aspirants, and um, therefore the question becomes, what is the balance between the supply of such elite positions and the number of elite aspirants vying for them? And when uh, in a society a situation develops that there are many more elite aspirants, for the not increasing or stagnating number of elite positions, we have the conditions of elite overproduction, and elite overproduction uh, causes all kinds of difficulties for the societies, because um, uh, too much, some competition is is good, but excessive competition is um, is bad for the society because it um, leads to increasing. Uh, ili- uh, c- a conflict amongst the elites, all right, and as this conflict becomes uh, more and more elevated, the social norms and in sit- in institutions that govern sorry, elite rotation start to get broken down because that many people individuals, cheat. yeah, many individual elites who are, uh, vi- uh, you know, lo- the losing uh, proportion of losing elite aspirants. Decide to break the rules and try to get, uh, you know, what they want um, in, in a different
0: way. And so these these people become what you call the counter elites. Exactly, counter elites are those who work to overthrow
1: to to what uh, what to them is the unjust social order, and they aim to replace themselves. Um, um, you know, they aim to replace the established elites with
0: themselves. And. There's also, I mean, if these, these people end up heading the revolutionary or disintegrative you know, forces, they also have foot soldiers recruited, don't they? You say there's another part of, part of this equation, which is the ordinary people and the condition of the ordinary people allowing these counter elites to cause trouble, as it were.
1: Yes, exactly. And this is another useful concept that I discuss in my book. I call it the wealth pump. In fact, the wealth pump is a very uh, useful uh, mechanism that explains both um, the uh, conditions of elite overproduction and also why they have uh, a plentiful supply of food soldiers. So what's a, what's a uh, wealth pump? Normally, the, the economy works and it produces um, you know, its fruits. And the big question becomes is how these fruits are divided between the elites and the workers. Under some conditions, the, as the economy grows, uh, the fruits are divided, are uh, sh- shared fairly, and all boats are lifted, uh, you know, by that uh, that process. However, after some process, after um, societies become experience long term conditions of internal peace and order what uh, often happens is that the elites try to reconfigure the economy in ways that would profit them rather than common people. This is uh, known in sociology as the um, iron law of oligarchy. Simply because elites have power, they can turn it to their advantage. And as a result of that, more and more of the uh, fruits of the economy goes to the elites and less and less to The commoners. So, what um, happens to to the common population? The technical term is uh, immiseration, popular immiseration, essentially stagnating or even falling standards of living. So, that's one bad thing. And that creates a lot of discontent amongst the population. And uh, as a result of that, creates um, a mass of potential. troops for for revolutionary leaders. But at the other end of the equation, because so much uh, wealth is disproportionately uh, flowing towards the elites, that's uh, one of the reasons why we see elite overproduction. So if you look at economic elites, for example, obviously their numbers will increase and their uh, incomes will also grow as a result of the wealth pump operating. And that's how we get to a little reproduction.
0: Now we'll we'll return to the the cycles of this in a second. But I I'm interested in the background as how you came to this theory because you started out, which is fascinating to me, is that as you studied insects, <laughs> insects and uh, anim- other animals, mammals and so on. Yes. And how did how did that lead you to this? It seems an unlikely transition to make, but there seems to be a logic to
1: it, no? There is an, there, there is, uh, an inner logic, yes. So I was trained as a theoretical biologist. And actually, actually I'm a complexity scientist. I uh, use mathematical and statistical tools to study dynamical systems. And until the age of 40, I was uh, studying population cycles in insects and mammals, such as uh, lemmings, for example, deer, well, what happened was that at that point, I felt that we sort of um, solved the really major um, questions. And I was looking around to do something interesting with my life. I, had t- I just got tenure. And, uh, you know, when you get academic tenure, you're supposed to try new things. And so this is uh, what, uh, what happened. I decided to apply the uh, methodology to
0: human societies. This sort of methodology, which is, I mean, I, I expect very strongly resisted by traditional historians. How did it come to coalesce? Because you, you tell the story of how, I mean, there's other people who are working on similar fields. You describe, for instance, Jack Goldstone, who's obviously quite a pioneering figure in this. You know, how did a critical mass of scientists who started to think your way come together and generate this, this field of inquiry?
1: Well, first of all, I, w- I want to say that we, dynamicists we love uh, historians because cleodynamics is impossible without the great um, uh, empirical material that they've been gathering for centuries. So, of course, uh, some historians criticize us, but that's fine. I mean, the critique is also healthy in science. So one of the potential critiques uh, is that there is not simply not enough data in history to use for cleodynamics. And uh, yes, of course, as you go into the past, the knowledge that we have about past societies diminishes. But um, does it mean that that, um, the the past is unknowable? No, because we can use a variety of, um, often we call them proxies. You know, for example, how do you measure popular immiseration in the past, if you don't have records telling you about, uh, you know, the terrible life of peasants, which is often the case because uh, the nobility didn't care that much about them. Well, uh, there is a very uh, useful bi- uh, biological proxy, a proxy for biological well-being. It is the height of the population. And so what we know is that when conditions of popular immiseration set in, the, uh, the average height of the commoner population starts to decline. And uh, we can measure that because in, in the uh, museums, in the European museums, there are about two million skeletons covering the last uh, two 3000 uh, years. And they have been measured they have been dated, and so we can construct the curves that tell us when uh, population immiseration develops, and also when it uh, goes back. So, uh, essentially we can do uh, science as history, and um, many historians now are um, not only accepting, but even welcoming this uh, term. In fact, um, in the uh, data, historical database, the uh, project that I lead, we have, uh, we, are, we have been lucky to get more than 100 historians and archaeologists who are specialists in different uh, societies in the past, and they work with us to help us gather the data and also to check it. So it's, um, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's actually, I was, when I started with this, I expected much more resistance. And there is resistance, but uh, but it's not no, nowhere near as bad as it is sometimes portrayed.
0: Now, you've produced in this this book and in your your kind of nascent field of clear dynamics, you know, quite a sort of simple and universal seeming, you know, argument that crises, the periodic crises of complex societies, are inevitably preceded by elite production and popular miseration of the this sets in, in train, uh, instability. Um, was that something that, as you started out looking at the data, you were expecting to find? I mean, were you thinking these are the things we need to be looking at or was it something that emerged as a surprise out of your survey of the historical data?
1: It, it, yes, a surprise. When I sta- started um, on this uh, project, I did not expect to see such clear patterns. We don't want to overestimate it. Uh, So elite reproduction seems to be pretty ubiquitous feature, but uh, immiseration is often present, but not necessarily. You you can have outbreaks of political instability purely as a result of elite reproduction, for example. But uh, back to your question, I started with a whole bunch of naive ideas, which I have gotten from reading uh, historical romance, which is uh, something romances, which is something that is a key that was, uh, you know, I loved reading them. And that's probably one of the reasons why I decided uh, to go into history. But then, as I started systematically reading the literature, mostly the the uh, like economic historical uh, uh, economic history, historical sociology, anthropology and so on and so forth, I uh, discovered a huge large suite of different theories that were explaining things. And so Jack Goldstone uh, theory was one of them. Uh, and being a scientist, um, having many theories is great on one hand, but on the other hand to make progress in science, you have to start eliminating some theories in favor of others, and that's what—that's uh, essentially the work that uh, I and my colleagues are doing. We try to come—we try to come uh, to be uh, theory neutral in, in, in the beginning of the investigation. Then we look to gather data that would allow us to test theories against each other, and then uh, allow the data uh, this process to speak. Of course, uh, theory also needs to make sense. So that means that, in fact, uh, I I missed uh, uh, a very important step. In order to test theories, especially because they're about dynamical things like our societies, which are complex systems with many interacting parts, you need to translate theories into mathematical models in order to be able to properly them. So it's really uh, starting with a set of theories that many people propose, uh, including ourselves, translating them into mathematical models, extracting predictions, seeing where predictions disagree, and gathering data that allow us to to tell which uh, theory represents the um, empirical data better.
0: Now this, this theory you've come up with, I mean, among other things, it does seem to very slightly ring of, of Marx and Hegel in that it posits A, that successful and wealthy societies contain the seeds of their own destruction and B, that these things move in cycles and you're able to, to be quite sort of, I wouldn't say precise because you're more fastidious than that, but you say, you know, every couple of hundred years it all goes to hell. How, how precise is that? How universal is that? And was, did Hegel get it right?
1: Let me first a- address a question about uh, Marx and Engels. They were, um, of course, very important thinkers, but they lived um, uh, in the 19th century and they simply did not have the amount of data that we have now. So uh, the, theory that, the theories that we look at and the theories that seem to be supported by data, they have some Marxian elements, but they have also Max Weber and Emil Durkheim, and uh you know uh, even uh, Malthus. Uh, so uh, the, there are really synthetic theories there are right, there are good ideas that you need to combine and recombine in ways that are uh, that are best supported by data now to the question of cycles in fact another uh to whom i would like to mention lived in the 14th century his name was ibn khaldun He was uh, a Tunisian uh, and he wrote a remarkable book, uh, so Mukadima, and uh, where he presaged some of the observations uh, that we've made. But the cycles, yes, you're quite right. Um, These are not um, strict mathematical cycles, these are not planetary motions. I mean, think about planetary motion, you can describe it with just uh, a single equation, really. But human societies are much more complex than that. Also, even though all complex human societies uh, experience periodically those end times, the uh, different societies work on different, um, you know, uh, timeframes. So if you have a society, because elite reproduction is such an important factor, if you have a society that produces elite faster, than another society. Then those societies will experience much more rapid cycles. And what are those societies? Well, societies with polygamous elites. All right, so think, you know, about uh, Genghis Khan, right? He had, uh, I don't even know how many wives he had. He had hundreds of children and or uh, many Islamic societies. And so those societies, they go through Ibn Khaldun's cycles, which are much shorter, about a century or even less. If Naudun famously said that it takes four generations uh, for a cycle to, to occur.
0: Now, you also said that you know, in, the, in the monogamous elite societies, it's, it's longer, it's a couple of hundred years, but that the disintegrative phase, the, the sort of breakdown and, 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 well, not quite recovery, comes in a series of sort of choppy 40 or 50 year cycles. Why is that?
1: That's a very good uh, question and we are still um, working out answers uh, for it but my um, idea and uh, is that it's um, essentially a father's and son's uh, cycles because um, once a society gets into this uh, breakdown mode right we have uh, serious uh, violence and violence is um, self-correcting in a certain way first of all the most uh, You know, uh, the most um, ardent um, uh, people uh, get uh, eliminated by getting killed. But also the general population uh, becomes tired of constant uh, turbulence. And there is uh, going to be a growing psychological need for somehow to tamp it down. All right. Now, if the uh, structural conditions that have uh, driven a society to the crisis, elite production and uh, immiseration
0: have They've not got been, a wealth uh, pump operating.
1: Yes, they yeah. continue to operate. So the wealth pump has not been shut down. It continues to create uh, immiseration and uh, extra elites. All right. Then what happens is that um, after the generation that has experienced civil war dies off or retires, the new generation comes uh, and those are people who have not had um, uh, first-hand experience of what it means to have a revolution or a civil war. And they start the whole thing over again. So if the fathers uh, go through the revolution, the sons who grow under those conditions resist any kinds of um, um, calls uh, for to re- for rebellion and so on and so forth. And the next generation, their grandchildren uh, repeat the mistakes of their grandfathers.
0: And can you maybe give us, I mean, some concrete or one or two concrete historical examples that you've, you've looked at? I mean, the book's, book's full of them, so maybe you'd be better to, to suggest which ones most easily or starkly illustrate your your ideas.
1: Well, um, so, for example, uh, let's talk about the Hundred Years' War. The best way to think about it is not the dynastic war between England and France, all right, But it was really a, a long period, long conditions of civil war within France, within which England meddled when the French society has fallen apart. And so that's what we see in, in France. We see, um, the, um, essentially the civil war starts around the uh, 1350s. And uh, Henry, um, uh, the, which, whichever it was, the third, I believe, right, comes in. You know, you have the Battle of Poitiers and so on and so forth. The French are really frustrated and they go through like, 20 years of this really horrible uh, situation. Finally, the French elites figure out that we've got to pull together, right? And they do that. They kick out the English, by the way. So by 1380, they stabilize um, France. All right. Then the next generation comes, starting in the very early 1400s. You have, it's almost like the same, uh, the same Game of Thrones story being played over, but with different characters. All right. Again, there are uh, several uh, factions. They start battling it out. Another English king, uh, Henry V, uh, this time comes in. And we have another uh, bloody uh, battle Agincourt. and and uh, and French uh, are prostrated for another twenty years. Finally, they they figure it out, get get their uh, <laughs> house in order, kick the English out, and and then at that point they actually manage to rebalance the society, so that then they have like a hundred years of really uh, you know great period uh, renaissance. Uh, uh internally peace uh, externally of course lots of wars of um of conquest uh, uh, beautiful arts um, and um, and all kinds of things so that's that's uh, there you have these two uh, bouts of um of separated by 50 years roughly speaking all right of, of what appears to be a father's and sons uh cycles
0: now one of your other main studies which is you know, comes right up to the present day. But you talk about how the United States of America, you know, at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, had this extraordinary sort of dodged a bullet at the end of the Gilded Age when you were absolutely in these conditions for a a crisis. And yet what, what followed was the sort of, you know, post-crash New Deal situation that somehow averted violence why did that happen what what's your reading of that
1: yes this is um, a very good question and it actually is one of the reasons why i am um, you know realistic optimist let's uh, let's be cautious about that so the united states united states uh, let's travel back because with uh, history and dynamical systems, um, you always want to know the prehistory then of what um, you know, what led to the crisis of 1920s uh, in the United States. So the wealth pump got turned on in the United States around 1830 or so. It was greatly helped by massive immigration of people from Europe, which depressed um, their wages and turned on the, um, uh, the wealth pump suddenly you get like uh, dozens of new millionaires, all right? And they're mostly in the north uh, and northeast, all right? Whereas the uh, go- the governing, uh, the ruling um, um, elites are the southerners, primarily the slaveholders and uh, in, co- in collaboration with northeastern merchants. So the new uh, millionaire elite essentially rebels against the ordinary elite in the civil war they they overthrow them and uh, temporarily abate elite or elite reproduction because all the southern, all the old elites they're basically uh, you know they're pushed down uh, simply some lots of them get killed, all uh, right in the in the war and the rest of them get uh, their wealth slaves taken away from them, all right. Fifty years later um, we have another series uh, of uh, another crisis and takes multiple forms. There is uh, violent um, worker strikes. Uh, There are horrible um, race uh, riots. There is um, a campaign uh, by uh, anarchists, a bombing campaign by an anarchist, and so on and so forth. There's just multiple uh, outbreaks of instability fed from the common uh, source. So uh, at this point, first of all, there were still some people who remembered civil war, and they did not want to repeat it. So that was one thing. The second thing is that there was an external uh, source of threat from the rising um, uh, from the Nazi Germany, especially as the Soviet, the communist Soviet Union. In fact, in the 1920s, there was the first red square was... The first Red Scare was in uh, 1921, and uh, because uh, several uh, members of the political elites in the United States were convinced that there was going to be a Bolshevik revolution, and so uh, essentially the um, ruling elites got frightened, and one uh, segment of them uh, convinced uh, the rest that we better do um, reforms from uh, from the up down rather than revolution from uh, bottom bottom up, and so um, it was a lengthy process. It actually started in the Progressive Era, so right after 1900, and it was really most of these uh, legislations that are part that, that became part of the New Deal they were proposed or been tried during the Progressive Era. But the New Deal, so the 1930s, right? Uh, it set them, uh, you know, it's, it uh, set them in, not in stone, but uh, uh, you know, it f- finalized uh, those uh, initiatives, and that rebalanced. Uh, uh, so, what what what's what's happening? First of all, very uh, high uh, taxes on the wealth, over ninety um, percent tax on uh, on incomes above one million. It's, it's just it, it, it sounds unthinkable. Um, m- minimum wage introduction and the rise and um, and uh, giving workers power in terms of labor unions. So that rebalance thing this shut down the wealth pump and then we had a very good run until 1970s. So here, th- this is an example. And notice that there was an aftershock uh, two generations after the 1920s uh, in the late 1960s and during the 1970s, there was an aftershock. But because the structural conditions were, were uh, quite benign. Uh, there was no popular immiseration, for example, at that point. It all uh, there was still uh, quite a lot of turbulence, but it was nothing um, like uh, the previous uh, periods. And so now we are again to generation. So this is uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, it's almost clock uh, clockwise that we get these periods of um, uh, of. Uh, you know, uh, instability every couple of generations, but it's the, let me repeat this, this is an important point, it's the structural conditions that really determine whether we are going to have a serious one like today or not.
0: And your argument, I think, here is that the turbulence of, you know, the last couple of years in America has been, you know, not only predictable, but predicted by you, and that it's structural, and that it goes right back to, I guess, the 1970s and 1980s, when suddenly a kind of more neoliberal, you know, with the wealth pump got turned back on again, and a neoliberal ideology exactly took over the states again.
1: Yeah. So, um, in fact, I, I started when I started working on this. I didn't want to go into the um, present because uh, it's uh, it's um, uh, rife with uh, potential criticism and things like that. Uh, it's its hard to study history, but as it unfolds, uh, human passions are much more involved. But um, as I was giving talks in early 2000s about past uh, crisis, people always ask me, okay, so where are we? And that's when I decided to do that around 2007 or eight. I started, I gathered data. Remember that it takes quite a lot of work to do this type of thing. It took me several years to gather the appropriate data. And I was shocked. I was shocked by what I found. That's why I published this prediction in 2010 in a scientific journal Nature, because I felt it was not a prophecy. It was a way to, uh, again, to remember that the big part of what dynamics does is testing theories. And what is the most rigorous way of testing theories is uh, is essentially run the model forward, and and see what it says, and then wait and, uh, and and then wait and see what actually happened. So that was really the motivation behind publishing this uh, forecast.
0: Now, if there is, as you suggest, quite a kind of not rigid but a, a fairly robust model. For when societies are at risk of breaking down, and that these cycles—they may be longer or shorter—but they are semi-inevitable. Are you able to picture what are the sorts of societies and sorts of social disposition that are stabilist for longest? Because you—you you seem to suggest that, you know, for example, the so-called Nordic model, which oddly was was America's model in the mid-middle of the twentieth century. Yeah. Is a more you know are are the sort of more redistributive left wing um, social social democratic ideas safer in the long run?
1: Yes, in in fact, I don't believe these cycles are inevitable at all. Um, Our model is not perfect. There is still a lot more work needs to be done to understand how this. in times come about but it's uh, it's already is good enough i believe to make suggestions about how we can uh, balance it's like riding uh, a bicycle you know you have to balance uh, all the time it takes active uh, management so uh, you want to shut down the elite overproduction so thankfully we have monogamous societies and they have spread over the world In a big way, because monogamous societies are more stable than societies that overproduce their elites very rapidly. All right. Second thing is that this is what social democrats in Nordic countries, starting with Denmark, they managed to balance it in such a way that you have at the table, you always have um, the uh, economic elites, workers, and the state. And this tripartite, uh, system allows, to, uh, allows the society to balance the, um, uh, the interests of all. And they've been very uh, successful at that. But I spent actually a sabbatical in Denmark uh, a few years ago, and I see some signs that they may be abandoning it because the uh, neoliberal uh, ideology, right, the free market fundamentalism, is making inroads in northern europe also so they should be they should be careful about abandoning that uh, model which worked so well for them
0: is it possible to to maintain these models even if you've hit on the ideal model in an age of globalization and if you like interstate competition cooperation in an economic form that that makes it harder to sort of ring fence yourself
1: True. Um, so, for example, uh, one argument is that if uh, you increase taxes on the wealth, they will just leave, go elsewhere. Well, uh, but, you know, in the United States, uh, there was uh, globalization in the late 19th century, and which ended with, uh, uh, with the um, 1929 uh, market collapse and things like that. And so, um, in the United States, uh, the wealthy were... Uh, Taxed very at, a, at very high rates, but uh, not all. Some of them probably left, uh, but uh, most of them didn't. And in fact, the economy worked exe- exceedingly well uh in the sub- subsequent uh, decades. So uh, my thinking is that uh, this is somewhat overblown. Uh, when we talk about uh, dangers of globalization. And also, as um, societies try new things and succeed and show success, they tend to be imitated by other societies. So certainly, the United States is a big enough country where we can uh, afford uh, to start implementing some, some such uh, measures. And if we are successful, then uh, that would be imitated by other societies that don't want to get
0: into a civil war. I was going to say something that's very interesting in the book, That's maybe the, those, those sort of social democratic liberals who are patting themselves on the back for, you know, well, we've got the right system. You said that immigration, which is a great shibboleth of the, of the progressive left, is that immigration actually, and an untrammeled immigration, is a problem?
1: Yes, it is. It's a problem in the absence of institutions that mitigate its uh, effects on depressing the wages. I mean, if you don't have uh, institutions, if you allow um, the uh, market fundamentalism to rule, so what's going to happen? I mean, it's one of the laws of economics. You increase supply of something, you depress its price. So you increase the supply of uh, workers and you um, you de- depress their wages. In fact, it's very interesting that the old left, paleo left, so to speak, they are much more they were much more familiar with this idea uh, that um, and Marx, it's, it, Marx uh, himself wrote about bringing the workers from Ireland to control uh, English uh, workers. It's um, uh, the new left uh, has um, uh, changed um, its ideology in a very substantial way. Or even, you know, we don't have to go to Marx. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we can uh, uh, talk about um, uh, present day leftists uh, in the United States. Uh, you probably can guess who I'm talking about. Uh, right, so yes, you mentioned
0: even... Bernie speaking exactly. out against America. Bernie
1: has been uh, burnt for saying this. You know that it's the it's the writing idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that that doesn't need to return to us to America because you know it's the country that seems to be in crisis. Now you describe it very nakedly as a plutocracy. You say this idea that by the people, for the people, of the people is just rubbish and that the data shows that the influence of ordinary voters on policy is like zero. Exactly. How exactly is it, do you think, to survive in as peaceful a way as possible the present period of turbulence if all the power is con- currently concentrated in the hands of self-interested elites? Does that, or a, a section of feuding self-interested elite aspirants and counter-elites and so forth you know How is that going to be resolved if, as you say, unless they have the sort of scare the Russian Revolution gave the tycoons of the Gilded Age, you know, if they don't have that sort of scare, how are they going to start acting against their own obvious short-term interests?
1: Well, uh, one possibility we have to face, I hope that it's not uh, very high, is that we will eventually have some kind of a revolution uh, in the United States that would, would shut the uh, wealth pump. Down, I hope not, because I have um, studied so many revolutions. I know how horrible they are to live through. But uh, so my hope is that it, that it will be um, uh, the pro-social, um, a, a pro-social segment of the elites who will understand the problem well enough and uh persuade uh the rest of them that they would have and there would be substantial uh sacrifice we don't we don't know yet what precisely what mixture of um, uh, of reforms it will take but probably paying higher taxes would be one of them and paying more um, to workers uh which will affect the profits of course uh, is going to be another uh way So there is going to be substantial self-sacrifice involved in that. I hope that it will not, uh, it will be we will be able to accomplish it as a society uh, without um, uh, without major bloodshed. And what I think I'm I'm a scientist, so I'm not going to start a social movement. But what we do need uh, a broad-based grassroots social movement, probably to put pressure on the elites. That would be a,
0: a very helpful thing. Uh, no. I mean, a lot of people say, surely, you know, however violent and crazy, you know, and, and polarised the United States is now, surely we're not on the verge of a revolution or an actual civil war. I wonder mean, you have an example in the book of somebody before the Russian Revolution who had exactly that same sort of situation is that sort of sort of situation is it morozov his name i can't remember ah uh, M- morozov yes morozov yes mm-hmm. um can you maybe tell me his story briefly because i think he's such an interesting instance of the way in which we find it very hard because of our incumbency to 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 see anything really radical happening until it does yeah, exactly. So,
1: Sava Morozov, um, he was one um, of the I think ten uh, wealthiest people in Russia around, let's say, 1900, 1900, all right? And um, he was act- he was quite uh, progressive uh, for his own age. He was um, he owned a number of manufacturers uh, that produced clothing, and he treated his uh, workers uh, quite well. Um, and uh, he also Felt that the system, the tsarist um, uh, system, was unfair, and therefore uh, he wanted uh, uh, Russia to evol- evolve into a uh, better governed uh, society. And so he um, uh, he uh, funded um, uh, Bolsheviks uh, who were, were not called Bolsheviks, the Social Democratic Party, which uh, eventually gave rise to uh, the Bolsheviks. He in fact. Um, uh he published uh, he gave money to publish their newspaper uh all right so um but, but then revolution of 1905 uh happened and um he uh was uh, clearly surprised by how rapidly things went uh to hell essentially and he had a nervous breakdown because he could not uh, control uh, he could not uh, con- not only uh, not even control the events, he could not even shape them. It was uh, a uh, you know situation which was completely under, uh, beyond control. and so he had a uh, um, nervous breakdown. He went to France uh, his doctors told him to go to southern um, France to recover but he either committed suicide or some people say he was murdered there. Most probably committed suicide. So clearly, this was uh, uh, a, an, an unexpected consequence of his actions. This is why we need to worry. This is why we need a science of history. We need a science of history so that we can uh, uh, g- gather data and calculate things. You know, when you're b- building a bridge, you, you take measurements and then you do calculations. We need to do the same thing to avoid. Unintended uh, consequences. And just to end this story, uh, the uh, his um, widow uh, lived in their um, very luxurious uh, house uh, near Moscow until the next revolution, when this house was taken away from uh, Morozov's Marozovs, and uh, it became the, uh, the the house where the residence of Vladimir Lenin so uh to this adds a somewhat (laughs)
0: ironic twist to this whole story (laughs) it is it is truly grim now you also just to just to finish I'm, i'm intrigued you have things to say about the situation of ukraine and the divergent trajectories of ukraine belarus and russia after the breakdown of the soviet Union. but you say at the moment that ukraine has only two ways out of the present situation of war it's in either it's to go down as a state altogether or transform itself into a militocracy. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, um, there. Um, in fact, we I, I wrote this more than a year ago. And, of course, um, let me be very cautious about uh, talking about this situation because our data, we don't really know uh, in, many, many, uh, in, in many ways what's going on there. Um, but... Um, what uh what i do know is that the uh, oligarchs so those uh very wealthy uh, plutocrats that essentially uh ruled uh ukraine they had a very severe diminution of their power M- many of their uh wealth much of their wealth was taken away some of it was in fact in uh ended up in under russian control for example and but also uh, on the ukrainian ukrainian side uh Several oligarchs have been essentially um, have been dispossessed, so they are definitely uh, they seem to be on the way out, right? So now um, uh, Zelensky is uh, trying to position himself as uh, a wartime president. So this could be uh, one way a militocracy would uh, you know take root in Ukraine, or you know his um, chief uh, general uh, Zaluzhny has been also um, suggested as a possible good ruler. So that would be direct. Uh, that If, if for example, Zaluzhani becomes the next president, that would be um, formally a militocracy. <laughs> so who knows? But again, I want to be very careful here. Um, the wars are some of the most difficult uh, uh, things to predict. In fact, uh, they are essentially unpredictable. It's, uh, let me make one uh, important point here: that in, uh, in uh, history, there are some things which are very hard to predict and are probably unpredictable, and there are some other things which uh, which are more uh, amenable to understanding and prediction. Right, the outcomes of wars—that's definitely a very uh, difficult thing to predict. So, what will happen to Ukraine? Uh, you will have to ask uh, a prophet, <laughs> uh, a seer, <laughs> but not you.
0: Well, can I, I, I don't want to tax you too much for the profit, but also the, the final question I'd like to ask you is just the UK. Is your sense that the way that Brexit has will have changed the dynamics of our our elites, you know, is becoming less globalised? How do you think that will affect, if you like, the length of our collapse cycle? Is Brexit a good thing for the stability of this country or or a bad one in your reading of it?
1: Certainly, um, uh, Brexit has shocked uh, the UK elites because it was unexpected. In fact, I was um, uh, uh, I was um, uh, once uh, speaking to the same set of uh, invest- investors right um, uh, right after uh, your uh, Prime Minister, who was responsible for it. Um, so um, uh, clearly, they did not expect uh, this to happen, and. Uh, and I hear that um, there's been um, sort of um, at least some talk that uh, it's uh, this is something that we need to uh, to uh, take notice of that uh, that uh, that uh, the discontent the amount of discontent uh, the rate of discontent is too high and so it can take um, other ways out uh, which would be undesirable in many ways. So, um, as a shocking event, it was similar to the election of uh, Donald Trump, of, cor- of course, in the United States, although I, I, I don't think that United uh, that American elites have learned the lesson yet, All right? Uh, hopefully, the British uh, elites uh, will uh, take the necessary steps to rebalance the, your society.
0: Well, perhaps we'll now have the chance to do it more autonomously. So... That's a happy note to end on. Peter Turchin, thank you very much indeed for your time. Enjoy talking with you, Sam.